much joy for some and, and much sorrow for others that for all of you who have in your lives offered the gift of mothering to others, we owe you our gratitude and our thanks. The world would not be what it is in a good way were it not for you. A reading from the book of Acts. Now in Joppa there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs since Lydda was near Joppa. The disciples, who heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him with a request. Please, come to us without delay. And so Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. And he turned to the body, and he said, Tabitha, get up. And then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up, and then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the word of the Lord. When I read through the book of Acts, the second volume of the Luke-Acts collection, when I read through it, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at what a literary craftsman Luke is. Making my living with words, I can appreciate Luke's ability to keep several narrative plates spinning simultaneously. I mean, think about this. Back in chapter 8, the chapter which precedes our lesson for this morning, it finds us traveling with Philip and speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then as chapter 9 opens up, Saul is headed toward Damascus, kill himself some Christians when he bumps into Jesus out in the middle of the street, sees the light, as it were. And just prior to our text, Luke picks up Peter's story again with a, a deft sort of meanwhile back at the ranch. 
Immediately following our text for today, in chapter 10, Peter has a vision, and he's approached by three strangers. He gets invited to go to Caesarea to the house of a Gentile soldier named Cornelius. You see what I mean here. I mean, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the conversion of Saul, and the launching of the mission to the Gentiles in the conversion of Cornelius. I mean, now, if you spent any time with dry graham crackers and purple Kool-Aid in Sunday school, you know that Jesus has just dispatched some of the most important, or excuse me, Luke has just dispatched some of the most important stories in the Christian scriptures in a very short narrative stretch. Three chapters, three big narratives. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul on the road to Damascus, and Peter goes to the house of Cornelius the Gentile. There's a lot going on there. And guess what story gets sort of stuck in between these biggies? <laughs> That's right. Dor Dorcas. I mean, these are pretty heavy hitters, wouldn't you say? A lot, of, a lot of history tied up in these three stories. It's not just boring, we learn it because it's going to be on the test kind of history either. No. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the conversion of Saul into Paul, Peter, and Cornelius. These stories shaped the very life of the early church. We wouldn't be stretching it at all to say that the church, as we know it, would not exist without these stories. Wedged in there, in between these epic accounts, is this little story of the healing of Aeneas, just prior to our text, and then the little story of the raising of Dorcas. Now, I say little story because by it I don't mean insignificant, although I fear as an apparent sapling in the shadow of these three towering redwoods, Dorcas does receive rather short shrift, but what I mean by little story is exactly that. It's little. <laughs> it's brief. It doesn't take up much room. It feels almost like an afterthought, really. But I want to caution you. Don't, don't give up on Dorcas just too quick. I mean, for one thing, Dorcas is only one of five people named in either Luke or Acts as a disciple. You know who else gets named as disciples in these, this two-volume narrative? Well, James and John, back in the book of Luke. Ananias, who helped Paul with his conversion. And Timothy in the book of Acts. Well, that's pretty stellar company that Dorcas finds herself in. She's, at least according to Luke, she's no small-time character in this drama, She's a disciple. Indeed, Dorcas is the only female in the whole Christian scripture to whom the word disciple is directly attached. Very few people get such special treatment in the Bible. So Luke wants us to understand that the church suffered a devastating blow when the news came down that Dorcas had died. I mean, she's not just a member of First Christian Joppa's Tuesday afternoon bridge club. She's 
as Reggie Jackson would say, the straw that stirs the drink. So Luke can name Dorcas in the same breath as Philip and Paul and Peter with a clear conscience. Within her sphere of influence, Dorcas is a heavy hitter. I mean, just, just like those guys. But her stature within the young Christian community isn't the primary point that Luke seeks to make here. Although he does want us to know that this new enterprise called the church has some rather revolutionary ideas when it comes to women. In a culture in which women were by and large still considered property, the church subtly put forward the subversive notion that women were actually capable leaders too. In other words, from the very beginning, those who follow Jesus are schooled to trust women to make good decisions. That we ought to have confidence in women's abilities to exercise moral agency over their lives, their vocations, their families, and their own bodies is, is encoded in the DNA of those who want to live as Jesus himself lived. Now, the primary point Luke is trying to make with this sort of narrative mastery is encapsulated, I want, to, I want to propose to you in just a single word. One word ties all these together. That's it. Just one word. It doesn't jump out at you because you're reading an English translation, which we need to talk about, frankly. <laughs> People are kind of slacking. But if you... We're hearing these stories read to you in Greek, as Luke's readers would have, and assuming, of course, that you spoke Greek, you'd hear something quite extraordinary. Luke ties these stories together with the same word that he uses to announce Easter itself, resurrection. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the conversion of Saul, the healing of Aeneas, the raising of Dorcas, and the conversion of Cornelius hinge on moments of resurrection. And you, you say, oh, oh, all right. I, I mean, I can see how you might sort of twist the whole raising of Dorcas thing into a resurrection moment. But I mean, even though I don't see that word in the text, because after all, she is raised from the dead. But <clears throat> frankly, I think maybe you're stretching it on the other stories. Like, see, I don't see resurrection with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the conversion of Saul, the healing of Aeneas, or the conversion of Cornelius. So maybe you're just making that up. Nope. It's in the book. Resurrection. You say, well, where? I'd... Well, I, let's start with the obvious one, Dorcas. Luke tells us that Dorcas has gone on to her eternal reward, causing some disciples to approach Peter and tell him of Dorcas's untimely demise. In shades reminiscent of Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter, Peter arrives on the scene and tells Dorcas to get up. Actually, he uses her Aramaic name, Tabitha, which is very close to uh, the word that Jesus uses in the Gospels when he raises Jairus' daughter, Talitha. But the gist of all of this is he just he tells her to get up. Now that, of course, is a resurrection moment. 
But the other stories happen too. How about Philip back in chapter 8? Luke tells us, Then the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go to the, toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the wilderness road. And so he got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, etc., etc. Did you hear it? Resurrection? Did you? All right. Well, what about Saul's conversion? In the next chapter, chapter 9, where's the resurrection story in that? Well, actually, there are two. Saul, as you remember, was struck down on the road to Damascus by a bright light and the voice of Jesus. We talked about this last week. A little wobbly, perhaps, but Luke says Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Then Ananias, one of those select disciples named in Acts, is approached by God in a vision, and he hears Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus, whose name is Saul, and there it is again. Now after Saul comes the short account of Peter meeting a man named Aeneas, a man bedridden for eight years with paralysis, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And resurrection happens. And then we as we've already discussed, Luke tells us about Dorcas. And just after Peter's encounter with Dorcas and Joppa, he had a dream about eating unclean food in chapter 10. And the upshot of the dream was that the voice in the dream said, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And Luke sort of leaves us with Peter scratching his head and saying, uh, now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of this vision that he'd seen, suddenly a man sent by Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, who also, ironically, would have been called unclean by Peter, appeared. They were asking for Simon's house, and while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, look, three men are searching for you, now get up and go, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. There's resurrection in there, too. And what, all, what do all these stories have in common? Well, all of them, in each of these stories, if the characters stay where they are, the work God has for them won't get done. If they lie there on the ground, relaxing, struggling, frightened, paralyzed, dead, puzzling, then they're not going to get done what God wants done. But they don't stay on the ground, do they? What do they do? They all get up. That's resurrection. And you say, oh, okay, I get it. I see your point a little bit. But, I mean, just getting up is not the same as resurrection. I mean, Dorcas, I'll give you Dorcas. I mean, I might even bite on Aeneas and Saul, but, I mean, Philip and Peter, they just sort of got up. And really, getting up isn't resurrection. To which I would say, oh, oh no. Are you sure? Because in 
Greek, it's the same word, anistemi. The word we translate in English is the same word we use to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in Luke. Literally, Jesus was gotten up by God on Easter Sunday morning. That's what resurrection is. Luke is so artfully conveying that in all of these stories, uh, central to the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church, that God is busy accomplishing God's purposes in everyday resurrections among just ordinary folks. God keeps dropping Easter in on the unlikeliest of places. My father... A farmer's son lived with hay fever. That's how I began my dad's eulogy. I wanted by that to point to the interesting contradictions in his life, right? I mean, I knew my dad. I grew up in his presence. I figured I had a pretty good handle on who he was and who, by my estimation, he could never quite find out how to be or who to be. But he seemed to me like a pretty ordinary guy, full of all the usual human frailties that I guess we all carry around with us. And let's be honest, it's difficult to romanticize those folks who are closest to you, since you know what they look like before they brush their hair or after they bark their shins on the coffee table in the middle of the night, you know. But burying my father was an interesting exercise in seeing his life through other people's eyes. I had countless folks make a point of coming to me to say that my dad, who was an acquisitions editor for a publisher, was responsible for launching their careers as authors. Which, but that was gratifying to hear. But not entirely unexpected, you know, given the nature of his work. But I had more people come to me to tell me how he'd helped them through his patience and his gentleness to find God. Now, interestingly enough, my father never struck me as either patient or particularly gentle. Neither of those words would have been ones that my siblings or I would ever have used to describe our father. But all these people kept coming over and over again and talking about him with these same words. How my dad helped people find new life or at least the life that they were meant to lead which may in the end amount to the same thing. Now, I find it fascinating and not a little bit instructive to think that God can make something out of us that nobody ever thought we could be. That given the inventory of our gifts and talents, sometimes God makes more of us than we have any right to expect. Knowing ourselves as we do, that God chooses to embody the love and justice envisioned in this new reign through us. If 
feels confounding to me. But if when God tells us to get up, and we get up, and we go, then the story of the gospel is that God can change the world through people like us. See, that's the thing. The world, as chaotic and torn as it is right now, needs a little resurrection, don't you think? Needs people like you and me to get up and bring new life to the folks who feel like everybody else has given up on them. LGBTQ kids are dying, waiting for somebody to care about them. Traumatized refugees are languishing in camps, waiting finally for somebody to notice them. Our black neighbors are literally dying in jail, waiting for someone to realize that we seem to live in a system designed not to deliver, but to thwart justice. Single parents are trapped in low-paying jobs, waiting for a few people to stand up with them and say that you really can't live on $7.25 an hour. Muslims who live right next to us in fear, waiting for people like you and me to wrap our arms around them and treat them like siblings. See, here's the thing. These stories and acts aren't about Philip or Paul or Peter or Aeneas or Dorcas, story about a farmer's son with ragweed allergies. These stories are about God who constantly seeks to raise us up to do the work that God has set out for us in this new creation. The reign of God, a new realm. The point of these everyday resurrections is that God doesn't need much to work with to bring the good news of the gospel to a dying world. Philip, Saul, Aeneas, Peter, Dorcas, Cornelia, Cornelius, my father, you, and me. Indeed, Luke says that if God is determined to oversee a resurrection moment with us, then not even death can keep us from getting up. Amen.